Last week, our church focused on the first half of Mark chapter 7. And this week, we're focusing on just a few more verses from Mark chapter 7. Now, when you pull back and you notice what this actually looks like, I mean, think about it. If you knew nothing about Christianity and you stepped into this room, we have this very solemn ritual of worship we go through, standing, sitting, using our bodies, and now suddenly we've said, the Lord be with you and also with you, and we're about to dissect an argument between a Jew 2,000 years ago and another group of Jews over the minutia of what you can eat and if you should wash your hands before you eat it or not. Now just think with me how odd that would strike someone who, who hasn't drunk the Kool-Aid. I mean, you've got to know that these passages... Look, what we heard Deidre read, I bet a lot of you thought, that's weird. You need to know the part we just read out of the gospel sounds just as weird to people who don't buy it. That we're now going to, as a group, attend to this argument. Now, what's going on here? There's this group of scribes. They've come down from Jerusalem 90 miles. And they're picking a fight with this Jewish man over washing hands. And you need to feel the weight of the passage. It's not my mother. It's not some germophobic issue. Right? This has nothing to do with a Purell generation. There is so much at stake here that a murder comes out of this. Christ ultimately was murdered for how he ate and who he ate with. Now that needs to alert you that there is something going on here culturally that is beyond the pale of our culture. They've traveled 90 miles before the car, right? That's a long journey to make, to pick a fight with someone. And look what they say in verse 5. The Pharisees and the scribes ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of elders, but eat with defiled hands? It goes on, they don't wash before... 90 miles to ask that question. And ultimately, because of his answer to that question, they murder him. This is serious stuff. What does Jesus do in response to their very serious question? He doesn't take it sitting down. He rises up and pushes them back. He rises up and shoves them in the chest. He says to them, Your traditions are not inspired by God. In fact, they are not only merely human traditions, they are wrong. Jesus might as well have said they're mothers and then fill in the blank. (laughs) I mean, Jesus went for the jugular. This isn't the nice, safe Jesus that we put on t-shirts as our homeboy. This is Jesus being picked on and picking back. His response was explosive. You see, the Pharisees claimed that their interpretation of the law, their oral tradition, was actually given to them by God on the mountain at the same time God gave the Ten Commandments. 
that God gave a written law and an oral interpretation. And these Pharisees were claiming that they stood in the line of Moses and that their interpretation came from God. And Jesus says, oh no. Can you imagine? This is a group of people whose favorite martyrs died because they refused to eat pork. And they would have their heads chopped off for that. Can you imagine standing up to the World War II generation and saying, your brothers died in the wrong ditch? That's what's going on here. Jesus is attacking a national source of pride and identity. And he's saying, your fathers who fought in a war fought on the wrong side. That tore our nation apart when that kind of discussion occurred during the Vietnam War. That's what's going on in this moment. Then, as if that was not serious enough, in verses 9 to 13, Jesus says, not only is your tradition not from God, it's at cross purposes with God's plan. Now, this is the crux of the matter. It's the reason that we are spending two weeks on an argument between a Jew and another group of Jews 2,000 years ago. The conflict is over. What is wrong with the world? That's what they're fighting about. What is the problem with this world? And what is the solution to the world's problem? Now look, the Jewish people of Jesus' day were being led by their religious leaders to think that God and their relationship with God came from this particular perspective. It's this. They believed that God had given them the law at Mount Sinai 1,500 years before this and that this law, this body of law summarized in the Ten Commandments, which we read this morning, it's shaping us. They believed that this law, get this, was their badge of membership in God's kingdom. This was their membership card. Now we should not think that these religious leaders were using the law like a ladder of good works to climb their way up into God's presence. We think that because that's what our culture has trained, our church culture has trained us to think. They were not earning their way into God's presence. That is not what is going on in this passage. They were not trying to climb up a moral ladder of self-righteousness. So many of us raised on this side of Luther have read the Bible through that lens and it's wrong. That was right for Luther to realize that was going on in his culture, but that's not what was going on in the culture of the Bible. We should not think that the the scribes and the Pharisees were trying to earn their way into God's good graces. They never bragged about their own personal moral achievements as the thing that got them into God's kingdom. They pridefully believed, not that they were earning God's favor, but get this, that ethnic Israel, she is the true people of God and that their possession of the law, not the fact that they kept it or not, but their possession of it 
their national possession of the law, their belief was this. It demonstrated that they were God's people. You see, Israel was surrounded by non-Jews at this time. They were a conquered people. They were an occupied nation. Everywhere they looked, they saw Romans. And by the way, Alexander the Great had gone through a few centuries before and, 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 and kind of the Greek culture was flooding through an area. And what does a people do when they are losing their national identity? What, do they, what does a people do when all of a sudden a new identity is in town and is polluting the purity of your identity? Well, what they did is that they were using these laws about what we eat and what we don't eat and how we wash our hands and so forth and so on. Laws about what foods are pure and what foods are not pure. They were using these to set up the boundary markers of their ethnic identity. We don't eat like you because we are Jews. And because we are Jews, we are secure. Not because we obey the law, but because we're Jews, we're secure. And this law identifies us as different from you. We dress different than you. We look different than you. We, we do things different than you. And that, that shows us that we're Jews. And because we're Jews, we're okay with God. We'll be okay when it comes to the judgment of God. They were not using the law as a ladder of merit. They were using it as a national badge of honor. Now you can see. How Jesus breaking the purity codes. Jesus and his disciples were blurring the lines between this ethnic group and the occupying force. You try to do that in Iraq right now. This is serious business. So when Jesus says in verse 14, hear me, all of you, and understand this. This is like mom or dad saying to the children, sit down And listen close. He's getting everybody's attention. And listen, the risen Jesus is among us this morning. And he is saying to us, hear me, all of you, and understand something that is of fundamental importance. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person... They defile him. What Jesus is saying is that Israel had missed the real point of the law. Not that Israel shouldn't be concerned about it, but she is misapplying the law. They are using it in a way that it was not meant to be used. They are using the law as a national badge of honor. But a fundamental purpose of the law, it wasn't the only purpose. The law was also about wisdom, how to live life. But a fundamental purpose of the law was to show Israel that Israel, like everyone else, was broken. And do you see how they were letting themselves off the hook? That Israel, like everyone else, is profoundly defiled in their hearts and in the coming judgment. Israel, too, is doomed. Not because of the way they look. And not because of their ethnicity. But because of their hearts. Which are just like everyone else's hearts. Israel is doomed because whether you are a Jew or a Roman or a Greek. 
or a Virginian. Your heart is a problem. And having the ethnic badge of Israel does not secure release from judgment. During the time of Jesus, the boast of the religious leaders wasn't that we are more moral than you. It was that we are Jews. So we are okay. They were using the law of the Old Testament to support and secure their identity. They were using the law God gave them in the Old Testament to say that Jews and Jews only were in God's kingdom. So we must protect our Jewishness. So when these religious leaders come after Jesus regarding the way he's eating, Jesus says, look, you missed the heart of the matter. You've got it all wrong. Your problem is not the law. It's the way you are applying the food laws. Look at verse 16. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Now look, when you... Get in a car and you don't know how to go where you're going. And so you use a map if you're old or if you're young, you use a GPS. No, I'm joking. (laughs) When you get there, you don't need the road signs anymore because you've gotten there. Jesus is not saying the law was a problem. Jesus is saying the destination is me. I'm here. You don't need that food law anymore. Jesus is pointing out something that is so important. All of these Old Testament food laws, what they do when they're... All that stuff Deidre was reading about what's pure and what's impure, God, God designed that to get Israel somewhere. That, that all those laws were pointing somewhere. They were pointing Israel to the real need of humans, which is for a deeper purity. A purity in our hearts and in our motives and in our secret desires and in our attitudes. But the religious leaders had begun to use these purity laws not for that, but to stop on the surface of just reinforcing their ethnic identity because their ethnic identity was what they thought secured their membership. You see how they're getting themselves off the hook of dealing with their hearts. The point Jesus is making is that the fundamental purpose of the purity laws was like a road sign to point you to the real problem and the real destination. To show Israel that Israel, like all people, like you and me, that Israel was in trouble. Why? Not because of what they ate and didn't eat, but because in their hearts there was darkness. Sin, whether you're a Jew or not, originates in the heart. And sin is the problem with this world. Sin is what defiles us. So what does this mean? Look again at verse 14. Hear me, all of you, and understand this. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can, get this, defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what? defile him. Verse 20. What comes out of a person is what 
defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. Then everything after that is unpacking that notion of evil in your hearts. There's, there's 12 more things. The first six are in the plural in the original language. These are talking about actions. The second six are in the singular. These are talking about attitudes. So the actions of sexual immorality, this encompasses every type of sexual indiscretion whether it's sex out before marriage or when you're married, sex outside of your marriage or sex with someone of the same gender or, or lust. It's all of that stuff. It's in the plural. Thefts, every kind of theft we do. Murder, every kind of murder we do. Whether it's murder in our imaginations, murder in our words, or murder with our fists. Adultery, coveting. Wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slide, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile you. Now Jesus makes no bones about his bleak analysis of the human condition. I mean, this is over and over, defile, 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 evil, wickedness. This is not the soft, cuddly, fun Jesus. This is Jesus that you would never interrupt. There is fire in his eye and there is a sharp blade for a tongue that is slicing and dicing humanity into pieces. It's true that we humans do have some amazingly beautiful things about us. He's not saying that we can't do good and true and just and beautiful things. There are incredible things that we see in humans. It's the stuff of our deepest longings and our greatest stories. True love and courage and sacrifice and these themes. The human potential, it shows up in our great literature and in our art And in our daydreams and in our fantasies, this is the primal collective human awareness of what we were made to be. But many of us in this room, while we look dressed for church right now, we have seen into our own hearts. And some of you, like me, you know that in your own life there are secrets And passions. There are failings. And to be brutally honest. In the words of Victor Hugo and Les Miserables. There is a secret monster. A dragon. That gnaws with a thousand teeth. On the inside of us. He says it is a hydra. That crawls on the bottom of our souls. And some of us have caught a glimpse of our own sinister foundations. When I was in eighth or ninth grade, I don't remember how old I was exactly. I've tried. I'm glad you'll see in a moment why I probably haven't. It's this incredible ability to self-protect. I was playing football in the front yard with um, my best friends. My best friend tackled me into the bushes and it hurt. And so I jumped up and I pushed him and he pushed me back and we got in a fight and he won. And I walked into my house, through my kitchen, through my living room, 
took out my 12-gauge shotgun, loaded it and cocked it, walked back through the kitchen around the corner of my house, was lowering it at my best friend when my brother caught me and took the gun out of my hands. Now, some of you didn't get stopped right before the affair occurred. And there have been plenty other times in my life where it wasn't a gun, but it was a word, and I destroyed someone. What is this? Where did this murderous rage inside of me come from? It came from my heart. And there is a secret monster, a dragon that gnaws with a thousand teeth on the inside of every one of us. Janelle and I have recently read the memoirs of Mary Carr. If you haven't read them, I highly recommend them. K-A-R-R. Pardon the French. Well, the blank, blank, blank French. She says our problem is that every one of us wants to the UPS guy. She says this after her conversion. And it's really graphic. She's from East Texas. I guess that's her excuse. I don't know. She seems to claim it is. (laughs) But what I love about her memoirs is that they are a a brutal exposure of the heart of people who are dressed for Sunday. And you know what? Jesus himself said, these evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil, not white lies, evil things come from within and they defile us. That's the problem with this world. Each one of us, we are defiled by the dark corners of our heart. Defiled. Now think of this in two ways. On the one hand, our sin and defiling us, it is separating us from God. Because there is a God and he is not defiled. And if if I think that my harsh words drive a wedge between me and my wife, even a thousand times more so, they drive a wedge between me and God. There is a rupture created by our sin and our relationship with our creator. And it is real. And it is serious. God made us to know him. And to walk with him and to have an intimate relationship with him. He wants us to be in an intimate and safe and life-giving relationship with himself. But there is a real chasm. Dug. By our wickedness and this evil in our side, our hearts that we get glimpses of that bubbles up to the surface in ninth grade when I take the shotgun. Or this past week. Or just whenever. It defiles me. It goes to my record and separates me from God. And it is a problem that must be dealt with whether I reflect upon it or not. I mean, what's worse? 
The 30-year-old child who by giving themselves to drug and alcohol is destroying their family and doesn't even own up to it? Doesn't even recognize the wake left behind their destruction? Or the one, do do you see? Just because we don't sit around reflecting on it doesn't mean the chasm isn't there. In fact, that's even worse. But on 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 another level, the fact that it defiles us, it doesn't mean only that it separates us from God. It means we are made less human by our sin. Our sin disfigures us. It impoverishes us. It diminishes our humanity. When people do really bad things, we have this in our language. We say, he acted like an animal. Your sin debases you. It dehumanizes you. This is what Victor Hugo is getting in his book, The Miserable Ones, right? Les Miserables. Or Dostoevsky, who time after time in his novels exposes this capacity. It ruins us. It diminishes our humanity. So what is the cure? Did you notice Jesus in this passage doesn't say anything about the cure? He's just fighting to get us to see the diagnosis. And you know what? We're not Jews. More than likely, most people in this room don't think that your ethnic identity is what gets everything right. That's not our struggle. But what is your struggle? What is keeping you from owning up to the reality of your defilement? Maybe it's this common American myth that if you you do more good than bad at the end of your life on the balance scales, you'll get in. That's what most Americans share with Islam. That's the Islamic view. The scales. That if somehow you do enough good for your neighbor, somehow God will look at you and smile. But you are ignoring this chasm. What, what, what is holding you back? I mean, are you reflecting on this reality? Now, While Jesus in this passage does not present his proposed cure for our diseased hearts, clearly the assumption of Mark is that Jesus has the cure. I mean, the way he says, listen to me, all of you understand, those are quotes from the Old Testament where God himself spoke through his prophets to his people. Jesus is taking on himself the mantle of God. This is in the midst of a whole section that we've already been talking about where Jesus is presenting himself as the bread of life. You shouldn't read this passage ripped out of its context. It is the bread of life who's analyzing, who's offering himself. How are we forgiven? How are we restored? How are our hearts cleansed of defilement? Do you see how getting stuck in the regulations about food meant that Israel was not progressing to the real point? And what we see in Mark's gospel, Mark's story of the life of Jesus, is the radical claim that in Jesus Christ, by the Spirit, the Creator God is offering the solution. Not just for Israel, but for the whole world. By the way, that's the argument. 
You know why the scribes and Pharisees were mad? Because he was doing this stuff in ways that were blurring the line. And he, as a religious leader of Israel, was letting other people in. So after this, Jesus leaves Jewish Israel and he goes into a non-Jewish area and he starts giving the kingdom of God. Look at it this way. We are in the season of Lent. I don't know about you, but Lent is getting long. I was on a tear all weekend. In the shower this morning, I was so tired. It was five something. I'm watching. You know what perked me up? I tried to pray. It didn't do anything for me. I often pray the Our Father, Our Father art in heaven, which means, God, you're near me. And that brings a smile to my face. Nothing. But then all of a sudden it hit me. I'm drinking coffee today. And I perked up. (laughs) And then I felt really bad. Like, you're such a moron. I mean, it was in the middle of praying that this outside thought. Lent is so long. I took Mike. Train him out to eat the other day. You know what he did? He watched me because he's fasting during the day. That's rude, right? To make me feel bad for eating. (laughs) So I just very rudely ate right in front of him. I wasn't going to let his rudeness ruin my moment. Lent gets so long. It's this long, slow period of preparation for Easter. And it has all these strange rituals and customs. Right on Ash Wednesday, we come in this room and we get these palm fronds that that um, John Hay burned, right? And um, these ashes, and we got these ashes on our head, and and we pray these prayers of repentance and confession. And early in the morning, we all stand up, and I read the Ten Commandments, and we're all solemnly saying, "Write these on my heart," and we cry out to God for mercy. And so many of you have made these commitments to give things up and to take on new things. Now, these rituals and these customs, they are the fruit of a long and extremely complex history. Within a hundred years of Christ's resurrection, the church was already spread across many cultures. And already there was this universal yearly tradition where people would go through a time of intense and embodied preparation For the Easter celebration. And as this evolved over the centuries, by the time you get to the 4th and 5th century, no matter where you look in Christendom, the preparation for Easter is established across all the cultures of the church. It lasts for 40 days leading up to Easter. Now this is a huge simplification of a very long and complex process of historical development. But what I want you to see and what you need to see in this passage is that the season of Lent, with all its rituals and customs, is the fruit of wisdom that Christians over a long period of time in a myriad of cultures, it's wisdom we've received from the Holy Spirit that has been handed down to us. And at the heart of the Lenten journey is repentance. Repentance. You must use these rituals to drive you to repentance. Alexander Schmemann, one of the most important theologians of the Russian Orthodox Church in the, in the 20, 20th century, he said, repentance is the beginning and the condition of a truly Christian life. But the irony is, 
See, that's why we need to listen to this passage. This list of our dark hearts, because this is the beginning, but not only the beginning, it is the condition of a truly Christian life. But here's the irony. In the rush of our daily life, we don't take time to think about this. So Schmiemann insightfully calls Lent a school of repentance to which every Christian must go every year in order to deepen his faith, to reevaluate, and to open his heart for God to transform it. Now, through our passage of Scripture this morning, the Christ is giving us a brutal analysis of our real problem. And like it says in our worship guide, When we face up to our sins and confess them to God, we are not groveling in our guilt. We are dealing with our guilt. If we deny our sins, we will never get free from them. Lent is a school of repentance. It is the church in all of her wisdom calling you to this difficult moment. Calling you to slow your life down and do what you must do. Have you been doing this? Have you honestly confessed your evil wickedness to your creator? It is not only the beginning of Christianity. It is the condition of a truly Christian life. Have you owned up to the hydra in your own soul? The darkness that not only is in your heart, but that you spew out into this world. Confess it. Repent to your creator. And when you do, when you put your faith in the Christ, that he is the answer to your sins. When when you put your hope in the Christ, that he alone is the only hope. That he paid for your sins, the penalty for your sins. He paid for it with the sacrifice of his very own life. When you put your trust in him as the sacrifice that alone can cleanse your defilement. No matter how dark they are. When you do that, you will be forgiven. When your children learn to do that, they will be forgiven. Forgiven. This is what the scriptures teach us. Listen to this passage out of Romans. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone, not just the Jew, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction, listen to this, between Jew and Greek. Do you see? Scripture's dealing with this notion of ethnic, an ethnic badge of honor. The same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. If you would call on Christ during the season of Lent, he will bestow his riches upon you. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
And that's not just the initial moment of conversion. That's every day. Call on this Christ. It's your only hope. He alone is the bread of life. Saved from what? From the darkness in your heart that defiles you. The fundamental human problem is that we have cancerous hearts of sin that defile us. They separate us from God. They make us less than human. And Jesus is the answer. He reconciles us to God. Jesus makes us more fully human. He walks among us this morning. Even as he walked among the lampstands in Revelation. And he says to us what he said there. He says to Martine and to Zoe and to me, be not afraid. Don't be afraid of me. If you would come to Jesus, he will not extinguish your true humanity. Don't be afraid of that. He will lead you to be more truly you. Can you imagine more truly Ernie? Could the world handle it? (laughs) That's what Christ wants for Ernie and for me and for Jason. For Jason to be more truly Jason. St. Irenaeus, he says, the glory of God is the human fully alive. This is God's plan for, for Hansen. It's not to diminish his Hansenness. It's to magnify it. It's for Alec to become more truly Alec, more fully alive. Don't be afraid that Christ will extinguish you. He will extinguish that part of you that is diminishing you. So that you can live to the glory of God more truly who you were made to be. Now, how do we get access to this great gift? Repent. Repent in Christ of the darkness in your heart. And then turn to Christ in faith. Come to the Christ in faith that he alone gives life, forgiveness, the power to cleanse and renew your heart. That he alone cleanses you from that which defiles you. That he alone can make you, you. Let's pray.